so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. All right, here we go. Oh, hey. Bring in your A game. There's never not a day I don't bring my A game. Mm-hmm. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and for the third time on this intro this morning, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, is Brent Leatherwood back for the second week from vacation. Well, Lindsay, I am I am just as excited to be here in the studio with you as I know you are to go attend a Richard Marks conference or <laughs> concert. Concert later tonight. Richard Marks concert. <laughs> what would a Richard Marks conference look like? I'm not sure. If it was a Richard Marks conference, it would be like how to have a raspy voice. Yes. You know, I yeah. don't even know that people who are listening to this podcast know who Richard Marks is, but you know, 80s, 90s heartthrob. I bet you, I bet you a, a lot of a significant amount of our our view. This is a, a very erudite, uh, well informed audience that we have. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm gonna go. Although I have to tell you, I I could not name a single song really? that Richard Marks sings. Yeah, I've now I've, and forever. I mean, I know I've heard them, but I I don't I don't know a single. Should have known better. Nope. Uh-uh. I Man, don't know how any of stuff. this goes. So, anyways, I'm glad you're going to that tonight, which means I'm not. Yeah. Which I'm thankful well, for. Well, I also might see Daisy Fuentes at the concert, if you know who that is, because uh, that's who Richard Marx is married to. Oh, so there you go. It's just a throwback here. Yes. Yeah, so instead of talking about my personal life and what I like <laughs> to do in the evening, let's talk about what's been happening lately. And we'll start with what the ERLC has been talking about this week. First, we have an article by Paul Miller, and it's titled, How Christians Should Respond During War and Other Tumultuous Times, Gardening Through the Apocalypse. So I saw Paul Miller uh, do this tweet thread about all of the hard events that we have experienced lately, of course, culminating currently uh, with the war in Ukraine, but before that, the pandemic and hard political times and just divisive times online. And just, it feels like we're getting walloped by hard things over and over and over again. And Paul was talking about, you know, what's a Christian to do? Just lay down and put your head in the sand or fight back in some way. And I loved it because what he tells us to do is essentially what comes out of the Old Testament, where the prophet Jeremiah tells the Israelites in the midst of captivity, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And he just tells us to be fruitful, to continue to be faithful as believers, 
to lament for the hard things that we're in the midst of, to not pass over that, lament, but trust in the Lord in the midst of that and to love our neighbors. Really, that's you don't have to do some big giant thing. You don't have to take up some kind of Twitter advocacy for everything bad that's happening in the world. In fact, as we've talked about before, I don't think the Lord has equipped us as finite humans to be able to handle all of this bad news. Mm. Uh, We're just inundated with it because of the technological age that we live in. Uh, Instead, he's planted us in, in different neighborhoods, in different communities, around different people. And the Bible tells us that is on purpose, that we might seek him and that we might be an avenue in which other people seek him. And so Paul calls us to be faithful, to lament, and to cultivate where we are for our neighbor's good and for God's glory. It reminds me of something my senior pastor, he likes this illustration a lot, right? If if you're like a tube of toothpaste, uh, he says, life is going to squeeze you. We, we know that, as you just said, it's, it's going to come at you and it's going to squeeze you. And when it squeezes you, the gospel should come out. And there are so many examples out there. Uh, whether it is on like you know, social media platforms like you just highlighted or other instances where there are seemingly a lot of Christians out there that life is squeezing right now and a whole lot of other junk is coming out that's not very Christ-like. And so we need to be cultivating and and, and making sure that we are putting enough of the gospel inside of us uh, so that when life challenges us, uh, we we run to that. We run to scripture, we run to the teachings of Jesus, as opposed to running to these other things that the world gives us, because that actually, I think, is is from the enemy. Uh, he he wants to use these things uh, to divide us. And so, so, yeah, we constantly need to be checking ourselves against scripture. But to this piece, I, I love what Paul writes here, I'm tired of living through interesting times. And that's right. Like, if you just look back through the last several decades. And we should be clear, the previous generations that came before us, they also could say this, but we have just, we've just lived through some monumental times. And he, he writes, we bear witness to ceaseless pain, suffering, and death. And for the most part, we are utterly powerless to do anything about it, except perhaps help clean up afterward. And in the face of such tumult, what would Jesus do? I'm pretty sure he would say, I told you so because he did. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains, Matthew 24, 6 through 8. And that's that's absolutely true. That That part right here, see that you are not alarmed. There are so many instances out there where people are just that. They're alarmed, and they're not acting like they have complete faith and trust in in Jesus. And that's just, that's not what we're called to be. That's a good point, Brent. And what you were saying about having the gospel squeezed out by the pressures of life just makes me realize how how much Jesus is to be praised, because when he was on the earth being unjustly treated, crucified for our sins, mocked and scorned, squeezed in all the worst ways, uh, he did not speak back. In fact, what he said was, Father, forgive them. And of course, Jesus doesn't hold back judgment, but he came the first time to bring salvation. And so I I know that if I was being treated that way, 
how Jesus responded is not necessarily mm. how I would respond. Mm-hmm. And we know we need his spirit yep. to be able and, to respond that way. And Paul says in here, I constantly need to be reminded of this. And like, that's the thing. Like, none of us are perfect. So we should give grace to one another as life challenges us, as the enemy puts hurdles in front of us, as we are tested, because we're not always going to react in the the most. But we do need to constantly be reminded of this. And we should we should help one another in in doing so. On a side note, I feel like if you were squeezed, Brent, kava would come out because mm. that's what you eat all the time. <laughs> For folks who may not know what kava is, it's it's a Mediterranean. It's a Mediterranean. It's like got a like a Mediterranean chipotle. chipotle. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. and I do love me some kava. Kava or Starbucks. Starbucks might be yeah. for your wife because she loves Starbucks, right? She does love Starbucks. So moving forward, I want to highlight a piece that shows the excellent work that our colleagues Chelsea Sobolik and Hannah Daniel are doing in Washington, D.C. And this is an explainer about what you should know about President Biden's budget proposal. And if you're like me, off the cuff, your response might be, yawn. That sounds really boring, but it's actually important to know about because a president's budget proposal highlights things that they are policies that they are trying to move through the government. And as Chelsea and Hannah tell us, it's a request and a statement of priorities and serves as a starting point for a long negotiation in Congress as they work on the 12 spending appropriations bills that fund the government. So there were some concerning things in there regarding pro-life, specifically the absence of some pro-life, very important pro-life protections. There was the inclusion of troubling sexual orientation and gender identity language that strikes at the heart of religious liberty. But there were some encouraging things that we would want to commend, including the rebuilding of the refugee resettlement program and immigration processes. And then also, some priorities about fighting food insecurity and the opioid crisis. So, of course, we would want to to applaud those things and support those things. And this article just highlights how we are watching these types of things, how we are keeping an eye on them, and how we are also continuing to advocate for the things which Christians care about and which God and His Word directs us to uphold. Mm-hmm. The best way to think about this is in context. So, one, some some historical context. When I took my first job on Capitol Hill, the first budget cycle that I worked in, just as a note of comparison, was President Bush's proposed 2004 budget. That was $2.2 trillion. Fast forward here, about 20 years later, President Biden just proposed a nearly $6 trillion budget. That's how much the size of the the federal budget has has and Congress will probably land somewhere in the neighborhood of of this number. So I mean, it, it, just the spending levels right now are, gosh, it, it, honestly, the the numbers are so big. It's it's truly hard to to really fathom. The second thing, this budget proposal, and that's the thing. This is a proposal that is sent over from the White House to Congress to basically try and act as a framework or a blueprint. Uh, a lot of this will not end up getting funded to the the exact levels that the White House would like to see because of either political realities or other priorities in, in Congress. But given those constraints, this should be seen more as a political messaging vehicle uh, and less about we want these exact numbers. I mean, some of that is certainly in there, but this is a election year. 
and the president is trying to put out policies that he thinks will be advantageous for his party to run on. So that's the way to really read something like this. Now, that said, some of the things that are in there are fa- fairly egregious. The elimination of the Hyde Amendment and these other pro-life riders that have been the source of, of bipartisan consensus for decades now, uh, the fact that that all of those are eliminated is honestly should be disturbing for all Americans. Because even if you aren't necessarily someone who espouses pro-life uh, viewpoints, you still should say, well, but if the if the government is funding things that these people are against, well, guess what? At some point, the government could fund things that that you are against as well. And so there's that. And also just the honestly, the naked uh, play here to advance these sort of sexual orientation, gender identity initiatives in various parts of the government. Like it's just it's just using government power to just hit us all over the head with things that a huge number don't agree with. There are some good parts. The the rebuilding and reinvestment of our of our uh, refugee resettlement program, which has languished now for years, is really good. That's a step towards helping to fix our broken immigration system, which a broad cross section of Americans, left, right, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, have all said this needs to get fixed. So that this is a helpful step towards that. But by and large, this budget blueprint is not a helpful document for people who are tired of our current political environment and actually want to see Washington solve problems and achieve consensus on the major issues we're facing. So we will continue to watch that, of course, and continue to update you on whatever progress is made as it has relevance. And then finally, I wanted to highlight an article that I was able to do in a print interview with Willie McLaurin. And here's the title of the article, The Importance of the First African-American Leading an SBC Entity, an interview with Willie McLaurin on racial unity and the future of our churches. And Willie is so gracious. He is such a gracious man. He answered these questions for us. And I think it's really important that you read them because of this. He he, I asked him, you know, what's the importance of your appointment as the interim president and CEO of the SBC Executive Committee to the worthy aim of racial unity? And he says it marks a significant turning point in the history of the SBC. This is the first time in 177 years that an individual of non-Anglo descent has served as the interim or head of any SBC entity. That's a big deal. And he is the first African-American to lead an SBC entity, even if only for an interim season, he said. I just think that is a historic moment. It's one we should celebrate. And with Willie McLaurin being in this position, we ought to listen to the things that he's saying I was able to ask him as a Christian who is Black and ministering in the Southern Baptist Convention, what things have been encouraging to you in recent years as it relates to racial unity? What have you been concerned about? He talks about those types of things. He talks about people who have gone before him, like Dr. Fred Luter. He gives some counsel for pastors and churches who are desiring to pursue racial unity. And he gives some encouragement to our brothers and sisters of color who are faithful in the SBC in the midst of really tumultuous times, whether in the midst of our denomination as a whole or just the culture in general that has been so racially charged lately. So I point you to this article and I really commend it to you. Willie has uh, some wisdom. He's walked 
this road for a while. And so he knows what he's talking about. And most importantly, he's concerned about the Lord and his glory. Yeah, Willie's doing a fantastic job as the the president of the executive committee. And, you know, we should note this SBCEC is vastly different from the one that was there even a year ago. There's a lot of different personnel and there's a different, and I, I think this is directly attributable to Willie, there's a different spirit with our executive committee. And, you know, look, a lot of folks may not realize this, but now as it stands, the the team at the SBC executive committee represents one of the most diverse entities uh, in terms of its staff throughout the SBC. And look, I'm not saying that to affirm diversity merely on its own. What I'm saying is there is a diverse collection of leaders at the SBC executive committee that are bringing their talents to bear to serve the churches of the SBC convention. And that is laudable. They they have displayed that they have expertise in these various areas. So whether it's communications or accounting or, or resourcing, serving our churches, like they have brought together a great collection of individuals who have rightly earned their way there and have shown that they are walking with the Lord in these these various areas of, of expertise. And and that's that's great. That's wonderful. And and Willie leading this, it's a significant step forward for the SBC. And uh and so I'm Lindsay, I'm really grateful that you had the idea to reach out to Dr. McLaurin and and get these answers from him. And I'm just I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that we have this resource and I'm I'm certainly thankful for his leadership right now. Yeah, I am um, grateful we just got a window into his heart and what's driving him. And as a Christian who is Black in the SBC, he was just able to speak from experience and encourage other other people of color, especially in the SBC. So we are thankful to have him on board, and we look forward to how the Lord will continue to work within the executive committee and uh, within the SBC as a whole. You know, I say it every week, there are lots of resources on our site, so I mean it. Go check them out, and uh, we are privileged to be able to keep educating and equipping you about the things going on in our world so that we can answer in an explicitly Christian way. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, what's been happening? Well, all eyes around the globe are still turned toward Ukraine. And so earlier this week, the United States released an intelligence assessment that said Vladimir Putin was being misled. Well, the Kremlin has come back and said, no, that's not the case. So this this first story comes to us from NBC News. The Kremlin rejected U.S. claims that Russian President Vladimir Putin is being misled by his advisors about Russia's failures on the battlefield. In a daily news briefing on Thursday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that neither the State Department nor the Pentagon have real information about what is happening in the Kremlin. Quote, they just don't understand what's going on in the Kremlin, he said, warning that such a complete misunderstanding leads to erroneous and rash decisions that cause very bad consequences. It comes after a declassified U.S. intelligence claim that Putin's senior advisors have been too afraid to tell him the truth about the situation on the ground. Look, up to this point, our U.S. intelligence community uh, has been pretty spot on 
in terms of its information about Russia. So much so that, I mean, folks will remember in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine, President Biden and other members of the administration were clearly signaling and telegraphing the moves that Putin was planning to undertake against Ukraine. And nearly every bit of that has played out exactly as U.S. intelligence forces have suggested they would. And so this isn't a situation like what happened, you know, back in the early 2000s in Iraq, where the entire intelligence community around the globe clearly was was not correct in terms of uh, Iraq's possession of uh, weapons of mass destruction. This is something, though, where our intelligence folks have had it right every single day. So that would lead me to believe that we've got some sources that know that this is this is absolutely accurate. Well, I'm not an expert in this, so I don't really know what I uh, can say. Uh, but my armchair expertise says even if he wasn't being misled, Putin, he would still be misleading himself, meaning he has an idea of himself and of Russia that I don't think anyone would be able to get out of his mind. He has a goal that he wants to accomplish that I don't think he would be willing to give up on apart from divine intervention. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, as we've said before, he's delusional mm -hmm. uh, about what he thinks Russia should be in, in the world. And so, yeah, that's probably exactly right. But we, I think we all know there's a certain amount of danger there when you have a leader like Putin who is delusional or is being misled and is not being told the truth. And that seems particularly problematic when they have one of the world's largest nuclear arms supplies. So Yeah, that's terrifying. That is a little that is bit terrifying. terrifying. Right. That is terrifying. Okay, so moving into our, our next story, which also somewhat uh, deals with, with Russia, whereas the intelligence community has been fairly precise, the president has not. And that kind of came back around this weekend as President Biden uh, was overseas in Eastern Europe for meetings with other world leaders, and he was talking about the situation in Ukraine, and he made a gaffe. And so this next story comes to us from the, the Wall Street Journal. As a matter of fact, it's an, an opinion piece, and it's about President Biden's misstatement and international diplomacy. Rarely have nine words caused such global consternation as President Joe Biden's impromptu reference to Russian leader Vladimir Putin in Poland Saturday. Mr. Biden's declaration that, quote, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Unsettled allies fed Mr. Putin's paranoia, buried the president's intended message, and complicated an already grave situation. The story goes on to kind of highlight uh, some additional instances. His Putin regime change announcement was preceded on his trip by a presidential threat that if Russia used chemical weapons, America, quote, would trigger a response in kind. The Wall Street Journal reports the U.S. doesn't have such weapons and signed a treaty pledging not to use them. And a suggestion to troops from the 82nd Airborne that they were going to Ukraine. They are not. Asked by Fox News's Peter Ducey about his triple gaffe Monday at a White House rollout of his 2023 budget, the president replied, none of the three occurred. Well, that's that's just not accurate. We we obviously have recordings of, of all three of them. And and that's the thing. Look, the Joe Biden came to prominence as kind of being a every man blue collar and just kind of speaking straight from the, the heart. 
And in the first of these two instances, these seem to be statements that just aren't based in reality. We, we don't have chemical weapons and, and our, he has repeatedly said our troops are not going to personally be engaged in Ukraine. This last one, the, the one about Vladimir Putin not remaining in power, this seems to be an instance where we're kind of speaking straight from the heart. But that's the thing. And I've, I've read some other sources that suggest that, you know, because I want initially when he said this, I actually wanted to cheerlead it and say, yeah, you know what? This yeah, is like same. we need to be sending a signal that Vladimir Putin is no longer welcome on the international stage. But what some of these other people were writing, these experts, I should should say, people that that understand this far more than than I do, they were saying, no, what you don't understand is with him making this statement, it feeds into the Russian narrative that, see, the West is out to get us. The Americans are coming for us and they want to topple our government. And that's, I mean, prior, you know, especially prior to the invasion of Ukraine, that, that's actually not what we wanted, although we, we might love to see that. That's not something that we were proactively wanting to do. And, and this could feed into that and say, see, we told you so all along. And that does seem to make things a little more chaotic. And that's not what the situation right now in Ukraine needs. Yeah, that makes sense. Because initially I was like, well, what was wrong with saying that he can't remain in power? And at what point is it okay to say he can't remain in power? Because we would have ended up saying that about Hitler, right? You know, so how with the crazy, terrible things Putin is doing in illegal war, killing civilians, you know, at what point is it okay? Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, so... I just keep praying that this war comes to an end quickly. Exactly. And we do not we do not need to uh, avert our attention from from the atrocities that are occurring. I mean, just like you said, he they are loading people onto trains from southeastern Ukraine and shipping them to essentially concentration camps uh, in Russia now uh, where, you know, these people are, are basically being reeducated. It's it's very eerily similar to uh, what the Uyghur uh, people in China are being forced to undergo. So this is far from over and we need to uh, we need to continue paying attention to this. All right, moving to our next story, it takes us to Florida and our colleagues at Baptist Press, they actually picked up an Associated Press explainer of a new law that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed in. It's a gender identity law and parents rights uh, law. So this comes from the explainer. Florida has come under intense national scrutiny over legislation that critics have labeled the don't say gay law. The GOP legislation, which Republican Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law March 28th, bars instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. Republicans argue that parents should broach these subjects with children. Democrats have said the law demonizes LGBTQ people by excluding them from classroom lessons. So here's what the law does. The law's central language reads, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through third grade or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Parents would be able to sue districts over these violations. So look, there are some finer points of the law that admittedly, uh, they're probably just going to have to be hashed out in court, particularly as you get into what is age appropriate, what defines that. But in the main, when you start talking about whether these sorts of, of sensitive subjects should be brought up in a classroom, either A, without a parent's awareness, or B, uh, not in a way that is appropriate for how parents want to teach their children, that's not something that seems crazy. 
that actually seems like, you know, we have been wanting and pleading with governments throughout the country, throughout the world, actually, to take into account the protection of vulnerable children uh, in all sorts of ways. And we have been uh, asking for policymakers, please respect the family as you put in place laws. In the main, that's that's actually what this law does. So we, sh- we should actually be affirming and wanting more. And that's not, please hear me say, that's not just something that I want Christian parents to say. Look, if, if you're a very uh, liberal, philosophically uh, person, I, I would think this would actually be a, a law that you could also say, hey, you know what, this is appropriate because I want to broach some of these things with my children. And so I, it's strange to me that it it has become such a partisan thing when when you read through this, as a matter of fact, a lot of this is just kind of common sense. Well, it's not strange to me it's become partisan because it has to do with the sexual revolution. Mm. And is very partisan, but also it's it's something that people are going to vie for advancing the sexual revolution at any cost, including the cost of our children. But you shared some some statistics um, from online that show that actually people on ideologically on the right, on the left, Democrats, Republicans, even LGBTQ people, the majority of them over 50% agree with this law in the sense that they don't want other people teaching their young children about these things. Right. Um, It's a low number of the people who agree that they do want the school to be able to teach their children about these things at these ages. Right. And I think that's important to note because it's being portrayed the wrong way Mm -hmm. in the media. Yep. So uh, back in my old political days, this actually comes from a firm that I worked with a number of times, Public Opinion Strategies. Uh, they, they released a new national poll, and it says when Americans see the actual language of the new Florida law, so it is read to them by a pollster, it wins support by more than a two-to-one margin. Overall, the number came back in support 61 to 26. Obviously, you know, Republicans came back 70 to 23, but even independents, 58 26 Democrats 55 to 29 parents 67 to 24 in support and then this one was amazing even if you know someone who is or identifies as LGBTQ that number came back in support overwhelmingly 61 to 28 percent so that's why I was expressing like gosh this doesn't need to be something that is this partisan now you're absolutely right we're in this moment where everything is viewed through a partisan lens but this the particular facets of this law are actually something that, honestly, most Americans are saying, yeah, this this makes sense. I, I don't want this in these early classrooms. Or if a school is going to do this, I, I would appreciate being given notice about this. That's... It just uh, seems like it makes sense, common sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I hate the way that it's played out. And so it's kind of become this partisan thing. And I, I do think that Democrats should take a step back and say, wait a second, why why aren't we the ones helping to inform parents and equip parents and empower parents? Like there, there should be some internal dialogue there uh, on the Democratic side of things. So, I, but I don't know, it's uh, interesting, but all that happened uh, this week. And I'm, I'm, I think this explainer that Baptist Press picked up, it will be helpful for our audience to actually read through this. Well, you know, and I don't care if it's educating kids on matters of sexuality as far as sexual orientation goes and gender identity, or if it's the birds and the bees in kindergarten through third grade, I'm going to exempt my child from that because I'm the one right. 
my, me and my husband, we want to educate them as to what that is. And we want to educate them in an explicitly Christian way based on a biblical worldview, because we believe that's what God has said, that's authoritative, and that's what's best and most loving. And finally, Lindsay, our last story comes to us from NBC News, where uh, they are reporting that new Gender X passports are coming in April. Uh, From the story, U.S. citizens will be able to select the gender-neutral X as a marker on their passport books starting April 11th, the State Department said Wednesday. It made the announcement on the eve of, I bet you didn't know this was uh, the day that's here, Transgender Day of Visibility, an annual day on March 31st that celebrates transgender people. The U.S. Special Diplomatic Envoy for LGBTQ Rights, Jessica Stern, said adding an ex-gender marker to U.S. passports, quote, is a momentous step. She continued, the addition of a third gender marker propels the U.S. forward toward ensuring that our administrative systems account for the diversity of gender identity, gender expression, and sex characteristics Among U.S. citizens, she said at a news conference Wednesday, she continued with this. The issuance of ex-gender markers on U.S. passports does not create new definitions nor rights. This policy change recognizes the true identity of the passport holder. And so it's really that last line, the true identity of the passport. Uh, Honestly, just defining that, that is really where, that's what it comes down to. That That is what this whole national discussion is about this, is is your identity just something that you can feel and change? Or is, an, is it in fact set by something other than you? Right. And that's just at the heart of man's rebellion, all of us uh, against God, knowing the tr- truth, but suppressing it in our unrighteousness. And I feel, I do feel for people who struggle with gender identity issues and struggles. That's got to be really hard and disconcerting and has got to lead to a sense of, I don't know, not being grounded. I don't know how to put that, but it's the natural outflow of there being no absolute truth. And what's crazy to me is gender X passports are for, to me, national security, right? And identity. But if your identity can be whatever you say it is, and your gender can change whenever, I just, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't seem to be a very safe thing to do when it comes to passports. The other thing that sticks out to me is, I know every generation can say this, but what a wild time our children are going to be growing up in. Because transgenderism, homosexuality, LGBTQ plus issues are all going to be normal to them. And it's going to be an uphill battle to teach them how to think rightly in a way that doesn't make it feel as if embracing the biblical worldview is a personal attack on Sally that they go to school with or, you know, whoever it is that's struggling. It's going to feel like hate speech because mm-hmm. that's the way it's been taught to them. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a, it's a unique discipleship moment, really, for us and for our children. Yeah, it, it really is. So all that said, in, in April, that is coming to, I guess, uh, passports near us all. It would be interesting to see how many folks actually take the State Department up on, on this offer. So Probably not many in actuality. Yes. So, all right. Well, Lindsay, uh, that is your look at This Week in Culture. Thanks for that, Brent. 
And now it's time for the lunchroom where we tell you what we are talking about with each other. So what I'm going to talk about in the lunchroom is the fact that the announcement has come out that John McClane is stepping away from acting. Do you know Mm. who I'm talking about? Yes, the uh, series of Christmas movies known as the Die Hard. Yes, yes. That comes with a disclaimer that check IMDb to so you can fast forward through whatever inappropriate parts are there. It's not necessarily, it's not an endorsement. But anyway, Bruce Willis is the actor. And I love Bruce Willis as an actor. In that that Disney movie, The Kid. Have you seen that movie? No. No? Oh, it's so good. The Kid? The Kid. No, I haven't forms a relationship with this kid. He's this business guy and anyway, not really a kid person and it's it's really cute. But I just love Bruce Willis as an actor and he ha- is stepping away from acting because sadly he's been diagnosed with aphasia, which is a condition, according to the AP article, a condition that causes the loss of the ability to understand or express speech, which is very scary mm. and very sad. And it could be because of a trauma. It could be because of another condition. Hmm. I don't know that they really know at this point. It occur, it often occurs after a stroke or head injury, they say it says, but I, they haven't said why he has this condition. But it's just sad. Bruce Willis is just a staple of an actor. I really enjoy his acting and many of his movies. And uh, I just feel for yeah, him. Yeah, he's kind of a an everyman, kind of blue-collar actor, right? Like when you think of Bruce Willis, you don't think of like these necessarily like these soaring emotional dramas. No, you think of the action adventure. Action the, adventure or like something like like Sixth Sense. I don't know what you would put that in, but Yeah. He's done uh, different types, but Yeah. But yeah. I mean he's just kind of like, like a he goes and gets actor. Yeah, he goes and gets his lunch pail and comes to work. Yeah. And uh and I, I appreciate about that about him. And so yeah, it is it is kind of sad to see that his career is winding down this this way. I know. That's sad. And, you know, you feel like you know people that are actors. You don't really, but they spend yeah. time with you, whether they realize it or not. So it's just, you just feel for him that's struggling with that. Um, so anyway, we won't be seeing Bruce Willis in, in movies coming up here soon. He had finished working on some movies that are due out in 2022 this year and 2023. So I guess we'll still see some movies, but... Yeah. Anyway. Well, um, what I'm bringing to the lunchroom is a article uh, that was shared by uh, really the the person who's the best host of this podcast, Jill Wagner. Oh, uh, yes, who was, of course. Who was on the, yep. the uh-huh. podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Uh, she shared a story that a few of us were uh, talking about this morning. Uh, this comes from The Atlantic, and it's titled, Why People Are Acting So Weird. And I don't know if you're like me, but you've kind of looked around and said, eh, people... People really are acting a little Brent, more odd. Listen, I work with you and co-host this podcast with you. Of course, I'm asking myself, why are people acting Exactly. Weird? There you go. Just set myself up for that one. <laughs> you did. Uh, I should mention. You teed that up? Yeah, I did. I teed that one right up. I should mention, uh, there's a couple of places in this piece uh, where the language is a little, you a know. colorful. A little colorful, right. But this this uh, this paragraph kind of captures it. During the pandemic, disorderly, rude, and unhinged conduct seems to have caught on as much as bread baking and Bridgerton. Bad behavior of all kinds, everything from rudeness and carelessness to physical violence has increased, as the journalist Matt Iglesias pointed out on a Substack essay earlier this year. Americans are driving more recklessly, crashing their cars, and killing pedestrians at higher rates. 
early 2021 saw the highest number of unruly passenger incidents ever, according to the Federal Aviation Administration. And in February, a plane bound for Washington, D.C. had to make an emergency landing in Kansas City after a man tried to break into the cockpit. What is going on? So this piece goes down and it talks about kind of the the stressful effects of the pandemic and, and isolation. I think that's part of it. I think that isolation part uh, in particular picks up on the thing that kind of I've said, but it's that that last part, the isolation that that's really where kind of I would want to say, OK, there's there's more to it than just the the stress of the pandemic, though. Obviously, the, the last couple of years have really felt more like dog years. But innately, God creates us for community. And I, th- I think we just like overlook that so much. And that's where that's where church is so vital. The community that can be found within a congregation is so helpful for people uh, because when we do get isolated, frankly, we get weird. Uh, when we don't have people that we can talk to, people that we can be friends with, people that can people that we can just do life with, we get we get weird. And I think this is part of that. And I think there's also something else at play, and this is kind of what I mentioned in our conversation on the team before I read the piece, is this is also an effect. People start acting out in violent ways, in vulgar ways, because if we believe that everything is about self, everything is about kind of this, uh, you know, our, our culture right now is very much in this moment about the idolatry of the which leads people down some dark paths where they think, okay, well, if if somebody else is benefiting, I must be losing. I, I got to go get mine, whatever that is. Uh, it leads people to having, I would submit these, these instances of unruly, bad, bad behavior. And I think that's also a part of it. So that, that kind of isolation and this, this hyper individualism that we see out there, where people are putting their own interests uh, above everyone else's that that that's actually uh what we are witnessing right now in our culture. Yeah, and again back to Romans, Romans 1, the the putting off of authority, us being our individual selves being the end all be all, the ones who make the calls. If there are no boundaries, no standards by which we live by and the goalposts are constantly moving then that opens the door to all kinds of crazy behaviors and nobody can call it bad mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. So, yeah, I mean, you just look around it. And this is what I said. It, it seems like, honestly, we're kind of descending into madness as a society, but it's not it's not nothing new because I also quoted one of my favorites, President Lincoln, uh, who wrote in a letter back in the mid 1800s, our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. So even even he was noting back then, God, we we seem to be heading downhill fast. But uh, so this is maybe not necessarily a, a, a new phenomenon, but it does seem like the pandemic has kind of put this on a quicker pace necessarily. Yes. And in light of Paul Miller's article that we talked about, with one crazy thing happening after another, it's hard to know how we can fix it. And of course, as believers, we know that our hope is in Christ and that we need the Lord to intervene. And we we truly do need the Lord to intervene in our culture to stop us from just completely undoing ourselves. It's just crazy. I'm all about weird. Like I said, I'm surrounded by weird every day. But when weird becomes dangerous, you know, and harmful to your neighbor, that's where I've, I've got to draw the line. Yes. 
That should be a line that we all can agree <laughs> to draw. Yes. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.